Is there anybody in here who likes poetry? Wow, a lot of you. I'm not much of a poetry fan. There's some poetry I like. First of all, it has to rhyme. I don't like poetry that just kind of, you're trying to figure out how to say it. I don't like that poetry. It doesn't work for me. And I got to be able to understand it. Most poetry, I don't know what they're saying. So Tennyson's Byron, no. I'm more of a Seuss kind of guy. <laughs> That's poetry I get. Roses are red, violets are blue, some poems rhyme, but this one doesn't. I just don't like poetry. But in the Bible, there's all sorts of poetry. But it's of a Jewish or Middle Eastern style, not of an American style. Some of the poetry in the Bible I'm not great with either. But it's a different kind. And the Bible is full of it. Like in English poetry, at least from the simple side of things, we like it to rhyme or to sound good. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain. English poetry. Thing is, with Hebrew, Hebrew automatically rhymes. The endings of the words, if you're talking to masculine plural, will always sound the same, masculine plural. If you're talking feminine, the endings will always be the same. So rhyme is different in the Bible than it is what we know. Poetry is different. I like to call it thought rhyme. There's um, basically two primary types of Hebrew poetry and all sorts of offshoots. You say this versus that. In other words, well, let me give you some examples. Um, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son grieves his mother. That's Hebrew poetry. This versus that. And there's different nuances and styles of it. Here's another. My son, listen to your father's instruction and do not let go of your mother's teaching. So the first one was this versus that, a wise son versus a foolish son. This is listen to your father and also listen to your mother. So one is just the opposite, and the other builds on the same. Okay? Hebrew poetry. Here's another example. Discretion will protect you. Understanding will watch over you. Okay, so the first one was a contrast. This is versus that. The other one built on itself, father to mother. This one says the same thing twice. Listen. Discretion will protect you. Understanding will watch over you. It's basically saying the same thing, but two different ways. Another type of Hebrew poetry. So basically, they're synthetic or antithetic. They're either contrary to one another, or they're the same, or building on. That's pretty much Hebrew poetry. Last example. Wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. That's Jewish poetry in a simple form. We're going to see in Nahum that he takes poetry to a whole new level. So you read it in English, and you have no clue it's a poetic book. It, and it doesn't even just do the way I just showed you. He takes it to a whole new level, and I'll share that with you in a moment. We are in the book of Nahum. We've been going through a series called The Kings and the Prophets. We're finally at the prophet Nahum. Let me show you on the chart here where Nahum fits in chronologically to everything. Hopefully you've been with me long enough to remember some of the things we've covered. This chart, by the way, if you want it, just let us know through an email. We'll send you a PDF or a JPEG or something. All right, Nahum is down here. Now, you notice you got yellow and green. 
Kingdom of Israel, Kingdom of Judah. There is no yellow here because Israel has already been destroyed. So we know that Nahum the prophet prophesied after the destruction of Israel. If you follow his bar right here, you'll see he was alive during the days of Manasseh, Judah's most wicked king ever, and during the days of Josiah, a reforming godly king. He experienced both worlds. Also, while he was alive and a prophet, Jeremiah was also a prophet, and so was Zephaniah. So we'll take a look at Zephaniah next week. Funny, Zephaniah. How many of you even knew Zephaniah was a prophet? Even knew that name? Yeah, a few of you. Most of you are like, uh, I'm not sure. Sometimes, you know, these names, they get confusing. These poor guys, they got bad rap. They're minor prophets. But as we're going to see this morning, they had cool things to say. So here's how the book of Nahum starts out. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. What's the book of Nahum? Who's the book of Nahum addressed to? I just told you. Nineveh, right. It's not addressed to you. It's not for the church. It's not for Israel. It's not for China, Africa, or Mongolia. The context of this book is Nineveh. I'll tell you why this is important. All of the Bible was written for our learning. It was all written for us. But it was not all written to us or about us. There are some parts of the Bible that just don't apply to you. I know you might get offended that it's not all about you, but it's not. We make a huge mistake in Christian circles when we crack open the scriptures and just assume it's all about us. And everything we read's got a message for me. No, it doesn't. Not directly. We can learn from it, of course, but that doesn't mean it's directly to us. And I just want to throw that out as you do your own personal Bible study. Stop and ask yourself a few questions. Who's this written to? What's it written about? In fact, you can do the who, what, when, where, why, and how. So you know the context of what you're reading. And that would solve a lot of the bad theological problems that people step into, assuming that every passage in there has direct, immediate application to the person reading it. God says, this is an oracle concerning Nineveh. He doesn't say this is an oracle concerning Steve Shermet and Book of Life Community Church. We will learn from it. But we've got to understand all the Bible was written for us, but not all of it was written to us or about us. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the vision of Nahum. On that chart, if it's easy to bring up, bring it back up again. But if it's not, that's fine. Um, you'll notice that the prophets are placed in there where all the kings are. So we know exactly when they ministered. And we have two colors. We've got the yellow and the green. So these prophets would have a yellow band, it's hard to see on this picture here, in them, or a green band. If it was a green band, then they ministered to the south, to Judah. If it's a yellow band, they ministered to the north, to Israel. But there's two prophets on here with a red band. And Nahum is one of them. The other one is Jonah. Jonah and Nahum are the only two prophets in the Bible whose books are exclusively about foreign nations. 
Now, Isaiah talks about Israel and Judah and foreign nations. Jeremiah talks about Israel and Judah and foreign nations. But Nahum is just talking about Nineveh. He was a prophet to Assyria. Did he minister in Judah when he lived there? Of course he did. But we don't have anything written about that. Same with Jonah. His book is just about his experiences in Nineveh. Can we learn from Jonah? Of course we can. But there were at least two Jewish prophets who exclusively wrote about foreign nations, and Nahum is one of them. Not much is known about Nahum. Um, we do know this. Jonah preached directly to Nineveh, and they repented, and God did not destroy them. Here we are maybe 125 years later to 150 years later, somewhere in there, and Nahum's preaching about Nineveh again, and this time they get destroyed. I don't think he took a trip there personally like Jonah did, but Nahum did not see Nineveh's repentance. He saw Nineveh's destruction. Jonah saw Nineveh's repentance. They preached to the same country. Uh, Nahum, nobody knows anything about him. There's no archaeological education that... You know, we just don't know anything about this guy other than what's in his book. It's a very small book and says very little about him. But I find this extremely interesting. Almost everybody who visits Israel visits an archaeological site called, in the local tongue, Kafar Nahum. Everybody goes there. Kafar Nahum means the village of Nahum, the village Kafar Nahum, Capernaum, the village of Nahum. Capernaum means the village of Nahum. Capernaum is the city that Jesus lived in as an adult when he ministered in the Galilee. So even though we don't know anything about Nahum, for whatever reason, one of these very ancient sites in Israel, the city Jesus lived in, is known as the city of Nahum. So there's a good chance Nahum was from that city. Other than that, there's not much more we know. And maybe I shouldn't even call it a city. Maybe I should call it a village or a small town. All right, so now we know a little bit about Nahum, his intended audience. Now let me read to you some of his words about Nineveh. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots. Charging cavalry, flashing swords, and glittering spears. Many casualties. Piles of dead bodies without number. People stumbling over the corpses. Wow. Pretty vivid description, isn't it? All because of the nation, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. All right. First of all, he's talking about you know, these flashing swords and glittering spears and casualties and dead bodies. The way I envision this is he's talking about Nineveh's judgment, which parallels her crimes. In other words, this is how she left other nations, and this is how she's going to be left. Piles of dead bodies, corpses, swords, spears, just pure bloodshed and war. This is how she treated others. Now this is how she's going to get herself. God often sees to it that people suffer the same consequences of the sins that they've meted out on other peoples. It happens throughout the scripture. Judgment is like in kind, oftentimes. 
all because of the wanton lust of a harlot. One woman did this? No. Nineveh is the harlot. You see, this is poetic talk. It's, it's, it's like a simile or an allegory. It's a metaphor. A metaphor is when you're talking about one thing but using words of something else. Prostitution and adultery in the Old Testament, there's, of course, the literal kind, but there's also the spiritual kind. When people go after other gods, that's considered spiritual adultery. And when they sell themselves to serve multiple gods, that's considered prostitution on the spiritual level. So God equates the two and says, that's how Nineveh is. And God says, I am against you. Just to give you a taste, that's what Nineveh, I mean, that's what Nahum's about. God's pouring out and declaring his judgment against Nineveh, who would soon be destroyed. But I told you Nahum does this, takes, you know, poetry to a whole new level. He uses the kind I already showed you, the building, the contrasting, the similar, the different. But then he'll take all of those, like maybe in a verse, and then he'll do another verse, just the opposite. So he does it in pieces, and then he does it in segments or sections. Let me give you an example of his contrasting messages. We're going to have a negative and a positive. I'm in Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. Listen. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance of, on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemy. Vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. Wrath, foe, enemies, building, building, building. In and of itself, that's one kind of poetry. But then the very next verse then gives another type of poetry. So the Lord is jealous and avenging God, verse 2. Now verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. What? Did you just say he's ready to pour out his wrath all over Nineveh like white on rice? Yes. And now it says he's slow to anger. Yes. That's not the same thing, Steve. Well, of course, of course it's not the same thing. Well, then the Bible contradicts itself. No, it doesn't. Can't God sometimes be mad and sometimes not? Is that a contradiction? God is slow to anger. He waited on Nineveh about 150 years since Jonah went. And by the way, for hundreds of years before that, they were a vile, evil country. Before he destroyed Judah, there were 700 years of sin. So it's not like the Bible's contradicting itself. It's showing us both aspects of God's nature. He is patient. He is slow to anger. But eventually he does get angry. Just like a parent. Now, I told you, put your toys away. Don't let me tell you again. An hour later, hey, did I not tell you to put the toys away? No cookies for you. We very rarely start with the no cookies. But when we get upset, no cookies for you. Watch that attitude, mister, or you won't get any cookies tomorrow either. Now, the cookies is the light end of the discipline. Don't make me work my way up to the stick. Parents are slow to anger, but we do get angry. God's much slower to angry, anger. And when he gets angry, he gets angry harder. A lot of people think anger is a sin. It's not a sin. It's a righteous response to sin. Some anger can be sinful. In fact, the Bible says, be angry, but don't sin. So you can be angry in a righteous way, humans too. Sometimes our anger is sinful, and we have to learn to control ourselves and live righteously and only get mad at sin and then control ourselves in that anger. 
So God, here's how I would summarize those two verses. God is slow to anger, but when he gets angry, watch out. It says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. I guess he had to say that because from a human perspective, God is so patient, sometimes it looks like he's letting people get away with things scot-free. They're not being punished because his patience is that long. So it looks like, ah, you can just live however you want. God doesn't care. Oh, he cares. And we will all get our coming up in as individuals and as nations. Don't ever think otherwise. So Nahum had to slip that in there. The Lord is slow to anger, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So we know God is slow to anger. When he gets angry, watch out. And the guilty will not get off scot-free. There's this teaching in a lot of churches I don't understand it, but I'll explain it. It's called universalism. It's the concept that everybody's going to heaven. God loves the world so much that everybody will get saved. Well, isn't that a nice, beautiful concept? I mean, I don't like the idea of people going to hell on the surface of the conversation. When you don't really think about it, the idea of everybody going to heaven sounds great, doesn't it? God's going to just bring everybody to heaven. You want Hitler in heaven? I don't. I don't want to live in the same neighborhood as him. Well, then he'll be good. Well, wait a minute. Why would he be good in heaven if he wasn't good on earth? You mean like he's just magically going to decide to be a righteous person as soon as he's zapped into heaven? No, he'll just have a bigger place to do chaos. Well, God will make him good. God can't make anybody good. See, that's the thing about having free will. That's up to us. We get that choice. And we already saw how he chose. So now what do you do with him? He's already chosen evil. That's his God. He likes devil. He likes pain. He likes suffering. He likes horror. Now what are you going to do with him? Chuck him into hell because you're not bringing him to heaven. So the idea of everybody getting saved is a beautiful concept if everybody wants to, but everybody doesn't want to. Some people actually like evil. You know? There's this guy who thought it would be real fun to throw a smoke bomb into a movie theater and start shooting innocent people during a movie. That's evil. You want him in heaven with you? No, he's evil. I don't know why he's evil, but he's evil. He chose that route. Don't know why. See, there are a lot of crazy people, and they're not all choosing evil. So just don't say, oh, he's crazy. It's not his fault. Yes, he's crazy. Yes, it's his fault. There's a lot of crazy people that don't hurt people. I run into them every day. <laughs> there is such a thing as evil is what I'm trying to tell you, and there's such a thing as good. Heaven is the place for the good people. What are you going to do with the evil ones? Now, I know that's a simplistic explanation. But my point is, God says he will not let the guilty go unpunished. So universalism is not a biblical concept. Not everybody's going to get saved. John 3, 18. He who does not believe is condemned already. And then it goes on, John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Universalism is not a biblically accepted belief. God offers salvation to everybody, so everybody can be saved. Jesus died for everybody, so everybody can be saved. But not everybody chooses to be saved, so they won't be saved. By the way, I read you that verse. It says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Notice it says has. 
not will have someday or may have someday, has. In God's book, it's done deal. Remember, he's the God of time. He's the God of eternity. When you truly give your life to Jesus Christ, God writes you into the book of life. That's why we're Book of Life Community Church. I love that book, and I want everybody in it, whosoever will, can get in it. But when your name's in there, you're good to go. Has everlasting life. There really is only one requirement to get into heaven. You got to be sin-free. One requirement. Now, those of you who've read the Bible, you're chuckling, saying, that's all? Might as well jump across the Grand Canyon. That ain't going to happen. You're right. On our own, that's not going to happen. The Bible says there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. One requirement to get into heaven, you have to be sin-free. The Bible says nobody's sin-free. So who's getting into heaven? Nobody, if that's the end of the story. What you have to, people will sometimes tell me things like this, trying to make me look bad and feel bad. Because I'm Jewish, I believe in Jesus, and I'm a Christian. By that I mean, I believe you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. So what are you saying? All Jewish people are going to go to hell? Yeah. And all Buddhists, and all Mormons, and all Catholics, and all Baptists? I, don't, I believe everybody's going to hell. I'm an, you know, I'm not prejudiced. We're all going. Unless we get saved. And there's one Savior for Jewish people, for Mormons, for Baptists, for Catholics, for Muslims. There's one Savior. One way to be saved. Some people think that isn't right. And I'm like, how could that be wrong? I'm going to hell. I have a Savior. You got a problem with that? You, wanna, you, you don't want to go? Don't go. <laughs> you know? I think it's awesome we have a Savior. It's some good news. It is an amazing story that we have. So the Bible says there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. That's Ecclesiastes. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet said. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. See, even when we think we're doing good on the level of God, they don't even make the scale. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our, our sins sweep us away. So, we're all going to hell unless we get saved. John 3.16 God loved the world enough to save us. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son for us. That whoever believes in him will not perish. Will not. But will have life everlasting. So, good news, bad news kind of thing. Just like Nahum was doing. Nahum showed us God has contrasting nature. He's slow to anger but he's not going to let the guilty get off scot-free. He's not done. He keeps giving these contrasting statements. Let me read to you a couple more. Verse 6. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. When God is angry, there is no escape from his fierce justice. His judgment is just as awesome on the bad side, as his grace is awesome on the good side. Who can withstand his indignation? Nobody. But then the next verse it says, the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. 
Good news, bad news. Back and forth, back and forth. So God is this attacking army who destroys the citadel. But he is the citadel for those who trust him. He's both. For those who love him, he's their protector. For those who despise him, he's their destroyer. Nahum gives us both sides. Poetry, but also truth. It's funny, and um, my creation science friends ought to appreciate this. You know, I take the Bible literally where I believe it's intended to be taken literally, including Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God created everything in six days a few thousand years ago. I've got no problem with that. So people try to come up with scientific arguments why that can't be true, but the creation science movement today has pretty much debunked all of them in spades. There are no scientific reasons that the Bible can't be true. How ridiculous is that? But they're trying to come up with internal arguments that the Bible doesn't really say that, doesn't really mean that. But for somebody who studied Hebrew, I know exactly what it says, and yes, it says that, and yes, it means that. So now they're coming up with something else. And the latest argument is, but Genesis 1 and 2 are poetic. So, what are you telling me? Poetry means it's not true? See, the assumption is if it's poetic, it's not for real, it's not literal. Well, poetry is true or it's not true. It's irrelevant as to whether it's poetry is what I'm saying. Poetry can be true or not true. Plus, it's not really poetry. That's another problem but we won't go there today. Nahum was speaking poetry, but he was speaking truth. Genesis 1 and 2, whether speaking poetry or not is argumentative, but it's definitely speaking truth. The Lord is good to the good, and he's harsh on the wicked. After a long time of forbearance, after patience. The New Testament kind of says the same thing many different places and many different ways. I believe the Old and New Testaments, you know, God is the same. He doesn't change. So the moral principles of God's justice in the Old Testament are the same as in the New Testament. In fact, a lot of people have thought, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he was harsh, man, judging people left and right, slamming them, fearful God. But in the New Testament, he's all lovey and cushy and nice and Jesus-y. Like it's two different gods and like the Old Testament different from the New Testament. I don't see it that way at all. You want to see the harshest God story in the Bible? Read the book of Revelation. It's in the New Testament. That ain't lovey and cushy. That's some serious judgment. You want to see a patient, loving God? Look at how God dealt with Israel and Judah for 700 years while they were worshiping idols. He kept overlooking it, kept telling them, stop, stop, please, stop, stop, stop. You going to do that for 700 years? You might do it for like seven minutes. <laughs> no more cookies for you. We were not that patient. So it's the same God, and it reads the same. God, Romans chapter 2, God will give to each person according to what he's done. To those who by persistence in doing good, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Same Old Testament, New Testament. It's just the Bible. So... We've seen how Nahum gives us these two aspects of God's character, how he's avenging on one hand and slow to wrath on the other. He shows us how he's good to good, the good on the one hand and yet harsh on the harsh on the other hand. And now we're going to have bad news and good news. Verses 14 and 15. Here's the bad news first. The Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. 
Now, you see, remember I told you not all the Bible was written to you? Aren't you glad? Because then this would be written to you, too. <laughs> well, Book of Life, I got some bad news for you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Y'all going to die today. Lord bless you. Have a nice Sunday. Evidence. It's not all to us. This is to Nineveh. God is getting ready to destroy them, and they were destroyed. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave because you are vile. Wow. That's about as harsh as it gets in the Bible, isn't it? God calling people vile. We like to think in little boxes. We either fully and appreciate the love of God, or we're all severe and too serious in our religion. And God's like this. Well, over there is the love of God, and over here is the wrath of God. It's still one God. He's good to the good, harsh on the wicked, after lots of patience. God so loved the world doesn't stop him from recognizing that even in the world he loves, some people are vile. Now, he died for vile people too. But they're going to have to make a choice, believe in Jesus or not. And eventually, they will be cut off. If they determine that Vileville is their permanent residence, God will honor that choice. He doesn't want to honor that choice. He, he, he has done everything within his power to get people over to Gracetown where there's love and happiness and the birds sing and the flowers are yellow. But for whatever reason, some people like Vileville where it's all weeds and dust and rocks and broken buildings and bad sound systems. I don't understand why people like Vileville, but they do. Why in the world did I say bad sound systems? <laughs> I'll tell you why. And I know I'm, I'm going to make some enemies, so I better preface this before I make it. I like almost every kind of music. There's even some heavy metal music I like, some. But there's some to me that sounds like if I was making a movie of hell, that would be the background music. <laughs> and that's why I said, now imagine that on a bad sound system. <laughs> bad boy. <laughs> All right. So the bad news is Vileville. And that's in verse 14. The good news comes in the very next verse, verse 15. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace. It's so funny to me. I'm going to destroy you. You are vile. Good news. Like, wow, not even a moment to get my bearings. How is that good news? I'll tell you how it's good news. Nineveh's going to be destroyed. Do you remember when they said they got bin Laden? Wasn't that good news? Wasn't good news for bin Laden, but it was good news for us. And when we went over to Europe during World War II and told them what we thought about them murdering a bunch of innocent people, and we, we put the hurt on them and shut them down, and then we had big ticker tape parades because it was good news. Good news for us, not so good for the Nazis. We destroyed them. So one man's good news could be another man's bad news. But in the world 
of right and wrong, it's good news that Nineveh was being destroyed. And it was especially good news for Judah because those were the Nazis of their day, as it were, their enemies, the bad people who are always hurting people. Good news, Nineveh's destroyed. Judah is not. This verse I just read to you, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. Nahum said that. But Isaiah also said that. So my guess is one of two things. Nahum was familiar with Isaiah and his writings and his messages, and he borrowed that for his own. Or the Holy Spirit who gave Nahum the message is the same Holy Spirit who gave Isaiah the message, and he gave it to him independently. He either got it from Isaiah or straight from the Holy Spirit, but they both said the same thing. At least three times this verse is mentioned in the Bible. I found three. There may be more. And I like the fact that this is said at least three times because it's good news. You can give me all the good I hate the bad news. You know, I'm sick of the news. Turn on the TV. It shouldn't be called CNN or Fox News. It should just be called Bad News Network. Because today, news is just synonymous with something bad. Why do they have to do that? One of you guys out there, put in some good news. I'll start watching. I promise. That's what I, I want some good news. It's okay. You got to hear the bad news too. But case in point, this evil man goes and kills a bunch of people. That's news. We have to hear it. It's horrible. But how many people risk their lives to save people? Did you read those stories? They're out there. A couple boyfriends guarding their girlfriends. I want to hear about that guy. And I want to hear about the girlfriend he saved. I want to hear from her. How about the lady who got shot in the head at the movie theater? She had a birth defect, which left a little space in her skull. And the bullet went all the way through that space and caused very little to no brain damage. Shot in the face, and she's doing okay. Why don't you hear that news? And how about all the people throughout the United States of America who risked their lives that day to help somebody? We don't hear that stuff. That's the, okay, if I gotta hear the bad, I wanna hear the bad, but I wanna hear the good. I like, if you like good news more, let me see your hands. Yeah. And yet, that's not what they give us. I'm not even sure we need all this news. Maybe something like that. But you know what? If something bad happens in Tucson, I'm going to hear about it. If it happens in Phoenix, I'm going to hear about it. If it happens in Sierra Vista, I'm going to hear about it. If it happens in Peoria, I'm going to hear about it. If it happens in Missouri, I'm going to hear about it. If it happens in Florida, I'm going to hear about it. If it happens in Africa, I'm going to hear about it. If it happens in Uganda, I'm going to hear about it. Really? Do I need to bear all the bad news of the entire world? Enough already. That could really discourage you. We start to think it's bad everywhere all the time. It's not. But we're just getting a diet of badness. I believe that the more yuck we're exposed to, the more depressed we get. The more physically ill we get. We can't bear up under that much bad news. But good news we can bear up under. Proverbs 15.30 says, A cheerful look brings joy to the heart, and good news gives health to the bones. More poetry. Bad news, I think, is just the opposite. It gives sickness to the bones. It makes us ill. Doctors will tell you that stress is extremely unhealthy. It 
makes us disintegrate before our time. Stress is one of the major problems we face for our health in this country. But good news gives health to the bones. You know, if one of these guys who own one of these major news networks would give an hour or two to looking at good news, it might change our entire country. Boy, what a concept. Proverbs 25, 25. Like cold water to a weary soul is good news from a distant land. And nobody knows how good cold water is like people who live in a desert. When you're out in the sun and you're just dying and then you get that cold, ice cold drink and you're like, ah, freshens you, freshens you right up. And I like how this one says, good news from a distant land. Because I told you tonight we're starting to broadcast Beth Sar Shalom sermons, which are pretty much the same sermons I give you all over the world. We're starting tonight. So we're going to be that good news from a distant land. And you can help. You can pray for it. You can support it with your prayers and whatever else, other ways you might want to support it. Good news. You, do you realize God must think good news is important too? Not just me and my hobby horse. But you open up to the New Testament... And there's a whole section that we just call the gospel. You know what gospel means. It means the good news. In fact, the whole message of salvation and redemption is just called the gospel, the good news. I wish we'd stop calling it the gospel. I mean, what does that mean? Why don't we just call it what it is? Good news. I'm in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news. In fact, that verse that Isaiah gave us, that Nahum gave us, is read once more in Romans chapter 10. And here's what it says. And how shall they preach unless they're sent? So this is talking about sent ones about missionaries, ambassadors for Messiah. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You know, how beautiful are the feet. I guess if there's a part of the human anatomy that we would never associate with beautiful, it's the feet. <whistles> Look at those feet. We just don't do that. We even have hand models. But we stay away from the feet. We don't like feet. In fact, in some Middle Eastern countries, some Arabic countries, you don't want to like sit and put your feet up in people's face. Like what I'm doing to you right now is almost like flipping you off in a Middle Eastern country. You don't show anybody your feet. Feet are rude. Feet are disgusting. They're the worst part of the human body, pretty much. And yet, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of Jesus. This news is so good that I even like the feet that brought it. That's what that's saying. Anything that can make your feet look good has got to be some serious news. And it's the good news of Jesus, the gospel, that he died for our sins and rose again. And all of us who are going to hell, we don't have to go. Can you give me some better news than that? I can't come up with any better. Winning the lottery doesn't even come close, doesn't touch it. Nobody has to go to hell. We can all go to heaven and be cleansed of our sin nature. That is some good news. 
Yeah! Woohoo! We've gotten used to it, though, haven't we? Man, you've been saved. You've been redeemed. You've been bought. Somebody loves you so much to send their son to die for your sins. Celebrate. I know it's hard, but let's not be white for a moment. Come on! Right? All right. Praise the Lord. Oh. So, Nahum has a message for us after all. And I told you not much is known about him, but the word Nahum means comfort in Hebrew. His name means comfort. So he's sitting there just slamming on Nineveh, but it's a message of comfort and hope for the righteous. Isaiah used the same Hebrew word in a very famous passage of Scripture. Let me read it to you. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Nachamu, Nachamu Amik. Comfort, comfort my people. Nah, his name is used twice, just right there. Then it says, listen, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Might I say, give her some good news. Call to her and tell her her warfare is done. That her iniquity has been removed. That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Judgment is done. Salvation is come. That's what Nahumu means in this context. Comfort my people with good news. Isaiah's words brought comfort to Judah. Nahum's word, Nahum's words brought comfort to Judah. We are also called to speak comforting words to people. We are the ambassadors with the beautiful feet. That's us. Whomever we bring this message to. We've gotten to a point, many of us, where we're embarrassed or frustrated, or we've just given up on sharing the good news with people because we figure they're going to laugh at us, get mad at us, or reject us. Well, give them that opportunity because this is the alternative. Let's bring them over to Pleasant Town over here, to Pleasantville. At least give them an invitation to come. Give them some good news. And then let them do what they want with it. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, give us the courage and the opportunity and the desire to be messengers of good news. We've got the best message the planet has ever or will ever see. And I'm guilty as everybody else, Lord. I keep it to myself too much. Please provide me, us, opportunities. Give us people with open ears that we might experience success and the joy and the desire to continue with what we've seen success in. Help us to lead many to Jesus with good news, comforting news, kind words that can bring them hope and salvation and eternal life. For those listening to me now, Lord, Please open their hearts if they have not yet turned from their sins. Inspire them to do so. If they've not yet made a decision to trust Jesus with their souls, may they now do so. 
For it's in his name we pray. Amen.